welcome to the What UK Thinks podcast, a series looking at what people think the UK's future relationship with the EU should look like. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis and Alex Scholes, we'll be talking about the continuing impact of Brexit on politics in the UK. And today, John and I are joined by Professors Rob Ford and Paula Surridge, two of the authors of the newly published authoritative account of the British general election of 2019. We'll be chatting to them about the impact of Brexit on the campaigning strategies of the major parties, how debates around Britain's future relationship with the EU affected people's vote choice, and whether the new political map sketched out by the result of this election looks likely to last. This is What UK Thinks. Welcome to listeners to the What UK Thinks podcast. We've got something of a Christmas special for you this time. You'll remember that just over two years ago, not long before Christmas, uh, we had a general election, rather unusually uh, in December, a general election that Boris Johnson won, got an overall majority of 80, an election that then paved the way towards the implementation of Brexit. Well, one of the crucial academic tones on uh, this election, the British general election of 2019, the latest in a series of books that's known in the trade as the Nuffield election study uh, that has graced every single election since 1945 um, has just been published. Uh, And I'm pleased to say that two of the uh, authors, uh, Robert Ford and Paula Surridge, are with us on this podcast and we're going to be talking to them. Uh, uh, Rob is a professor of politics at the University of Manchester um, and writes for The Observer on a quite regular basis. Uh, Paula Surridge is a senior lecturer in uh, political sociology, University of Bristol, and is deputy director of the UK in a changing Europe uh, project with which again, users of uh, of the What UK Thinks website will be familiar. So uh, Rob and Paula, as I've said, um, this is the latest in a series of books on uh, British elections that goes all the way back to 1945. Maybe just remind our listeners, what's the purpose of this series? And what have you done differently, and perhaps you think better than previous uh, 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 books in the series? Thanks, John. Um, I mean, these books are, as you mentioned, uh, the longest running uh, election studies series in the world. And they're called the Nuffield Studies because they were originally conceived at Nuffield College, Oxford, and they were the product of one fellow's irritation at oversimplistic single factor stereotypes about particular elections. I believe that the election he particularly had in mind was the 1918 election that got characterized or caricatured as the khaki uh, election. Um, And he wanted to produce uh, a rigorous sort of first draft of history type study Uh, conducted as the election was happening and before uh, myths and misinterpretations uh, set in. And that's been the organising philosophy of the series ever since. It's an attempt to capture a moment in time, uh, politically, sociologically, historically, and more accurately thereby document um, what actually happened and why uh, as as recorded both by those uh, who took part. So there's always a lot of elite interviewing involved in this, capturing the protagonists' perceptions of the election, but also through um, instantaneous, so to speak, analysis of the campaigns, 
uh, of the results of the polling uh, and so forth. Um, the studies have expanded and evolved over time. Uh, we're living in inflationary times right now, and that's reflected in the page counts of these books, this latest one uh, now pushing up towards 700 pages. And I think the biggest change we've made this time is we've tried to broaden the scope a little bit to reflect more um, fully the ways in which British politics has changed in the last 20 years. We no longer live really in a single um, political state in, in terms of electoral competition. Uh, and I know that devolution and Scottish politics themes close to your heart, John, uh, and we've looked to really uh, incorporate that more in the analysis with a full chapter uh, looking at the election and the preceding parliament from the perspective of each of the devolved um, nations. We've also looked to bring full analysis of the results more fully into the main narrative of the book. The, the results analysis has always been there, but it's always been there sort of at the end. And we felt that it would be good to have it within the main narrative of the book itself. So those are the two biggest changes I think that we've made. Isn't also true, Paula, that um, one of the other changes you've made is that, you know, traditionally the Nuffield studies, yes, they've analysed the election results, but they've said very little about the evidence that comes from um, survey-based research, including some of the academic survey-based research. Uh, isn't it the case that this is also one of the additions that uh, you've made to this? And, and why do you think this is a, a, a useful addition? Yes, yeah, so that is one of the one of the key additions we've made, and I guess responsible for the page length increasing to some extent. Um, I think there's there's two elements that allowed us to do that. One is the fact that these surveys are now produced much more quickly than they were when the earlier volumes of the books were being written. So we have the data earlier and we're able to engage with it earlier to tell that story. But I think also the level of statistical literacy generally amongst those interested in politics has increased over time. So being able to include that story is of interest, of more of more interest to um, readers now than perhaps it was two or three decades ago. So I think it's become a really integral part of the story um, of the election and the fact that we were able to include that data allows us to ground what happened in the campaigns by looking at actually the decisions that voters made at the end of the campaign as well. Okay, now um, some of our well-informed listeners may well uh, that there was a Fixed Terms Parliament Act and under the terms of the Fixed Terms Parliament Act uh, there's normally only meant to be an election once every five years and so given we had one in 2017, we weren't due to have another one until 2022. So why did this election happen? And in particular, can you explain the mystery as to why the Liberal Democrats agreed to help the Conservatives to bypass the very legislation on which they themselves had insisted as part of the 2010 coalition agreement? I think... For the Liberal Democrats, this, I think, highlights a tension throughout the, the certainly the last year of that parliament between the Liberal Democrats as a party and the Liberal Democrats as part of a campaign for a second referendum um, and to try and stop Brexit. And those two things weren't always completely aligned. The, the two goals weren't always completely aligned. And I think for the Liberal Democrats, once... Um, once a deal had passed, once no deal was off the table, as, as was the phrase at the time, it was really the last roll of the dice for them. It was the, the only way they could see that there was any 
even small chance of stopping Brexit. So I think it really was a, a gamble. Obviously, they had they had reason to think they might do OK in an election. They'd been polling quite well. Some of the modelling work that they'd had, um, particularly earlier in the year, had shown them making significant gains. They they felt buoyant because of the, the new MPs that they'd that they'd managed to entice across. But I think the really key thing was that it was a last roll of the dice for trying to stop Brexit. Uh, Rob, what can you say about this? And in particular, I mean, why did this SNP also decide to sign up to this idea of bypassing the act? Um, I mean, I think that this is one of those elements where, A, we can see um, the possibility of myths setting in. So there is a substantial portion of the Labour Party that didn't like the election result for obvious reasons that now holds to the view that the election could have been averted. But also there's a big role, I think, of the fog of war in this situation. This was a very fraught situation, very rapidly evolving situation. And there was a lot of misunderstanding, I think, between the parties about their relative positions. And also parties were trapped by what they'd said before. Um, so, I mean, I think you're right, John, incidentally, to focus in particular on the SNP, because Labour people who say the Lib Dems could have stopped the election, why did they want the election, seem always to overlook the fact that there was a much larger cohort of opposition MPs, the SNP, uh, who, when combined with the Conservative benches, would have been sufficient to get an early election bill passed, regardless of what. The Liberal Democrats did. And the primary motive, though it's rarely spoken out loud with regards to the SNP, is that an early election suited them politically because there was the Alex Salmon trial coming in the early months of 2020, and they wanted to avoid an election campaign taking place at the same time as an iconic former leader uh, was on trial. Um, so they had an, in, uh, an incentive to kind of cash their chips in early at a point when in polling terms they were well ahead. However, they themselves seem not to have been entirely united behind the cause of an early election. So we've had some SNP MPs told us that actually it was meant to be a bit of a bluff. Um, but if it was a bit of a bluff, it's a very strange bluff to propose legislation that enables the Conservatives to bypass Labour and get an early election and then be surprised when that impacts on Labour's behaviour. Then turning to Labour itself, the critical thing with Labour is they had been arguing for most of the previous two years that the best way to resolve the Brexit impasse was to have an early election. That meant there was an escalating cost politically to Labour to continue publicly opposing an early election they claimed to want. Um, now, before the sort of critical weeks in October, Labour's big pretext or um, legitimating device was no deal Brexit. They would say we can't have an early election until we can ensure there's no risk of no deal Brexit. But after the EU had come back and said uh, that the Article 50 deadline is being extended to the end of January, that argument was much harder to sustain. Then when combined with the fact that there seemed to be a substantial risk that Labour would get dragged into the election anyway because they'd be bypassed by the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP, the party's leadership really didn't see any option but to come out in favour of the election because the only thing worse than going into an early election behind was going into an early election behind and being criticised for trying to oppose it. OK, so I think it's a story that perhaps suggests that... Uh... We can write constitutional legislation on the statute book, but short-term political calculation will always potentially 
undo it, at least in the in the British system. Anyway, let's move on to the campaign that these various manoeuvres uh, instigated. Um, what did the con- what did the Conservatives do differently from what they did under Theresa May? What would you say they got right? But equally, also, what if anything would you say did the Conservatives get wrong? So, one of the key differences between the two campaigns was that the Conservatives went into theirs as if the previous campaign had been a disaster and they'd lost. And so they did as much as they could differently to what they'd done in 2017. And for Labour, the the reverse was true. Despite not having won the election, they went in thinking this had been a success and to do the same again, but more of it as much as they could. So the Conservatives were really strong on message discipline. I mean, Everything was get Brexit done. It was everywhere on all the billboards, every podium they stood on, every speech. The message discipline was incredible. They were much more careful about what they put in their manifesto. The manifesto had far fewer promises in it, far fewer hostages to fortune. And so in that sense, they they played a much safer campaign than they had done in um, 2017. I mean, on on the point of what did the Conservatives perhaps do wrong? It's it's a particularly interesting question to consider from the perspective of two years on, I think. And I think two things I would point to are, firstly, their very, very aggressive approach to the press and the management uh, of campaign set-piece events, including unilaterally withdrawing uh, from two debate events, was possibly a strategy of short-term gain traded for long-term pain. Because while on the one hand, it certainly helped to reinforce the kind of message discipline and control uh, of the short campaign, that came at the cost of burning a lot of bridges uh, with the media uh, community more generally. And the risk with that is that if you're not kind to people on the way up, they're not going to be kind to to you on the way down. And we've seen that this uh, government has been one that that quite a broad spectrum of both the broadcast and print media have been uh, very willing to criticise and hold to account intensely. And you have to wonder if um, their experience of the 2019 campaign may have contributed to that. The second thing is, as Paula mentioned, they had a very safety first manifesto. Indeed, it was criticised at the time um, by the IFS as being, uh, it would be unambitious if it was a budget statement, let alone a, a plan for five years of government. And the problem that's created is that when contentious issues uh, like social care recently uh, come back onto the agenda, there isn't really a manifesto blueprint that they can point to and say this is what the public have mandated us to do which can lead to some very difficult and tangled internal arguments in terms of setting the policy okay so just um, picking that up so um i don't think anybody suggested that the labor campaign was short on policy detail so um is it true that perhaps one of the characteristics of this election it's not uncommon perhaps in elections is that the Conservatives wanted to talk about one subject, and one subject only, Brexit, and Labour really wanted to talk about anything other than Brexit. I think that that is, that, that is a fair characterisation, but it's also pretty much a fair characterisation of the 2017 campaign uh, as well. Um, I think the difference lies in the execution. The Conservatives were much more successful at talking about only one subject this time than they had proved to be um, in 2017, whereas Labour's effort to change the subject to essentially a broad spectrum of domestic policy was a lot less successful 
um, this time. Uh, I think also it's true to say that, you know, it's not as if Labour were any less focused than they were in 2017, because they weren't particularly focused in 2017 either. Um, but what was different this time, at least at the top levels of the Labour campaign, is that the communications necessary to sort of knit together the day-to-day -day stories of the campaign into some sort of broader message had more or less completely broken down to the extent that um, spokespeople, shadow cabinet spokespeople who were supposed to be announcing and championing policies wouldn't hear about them until they were literally on the taxi over to the studio. Ian. Yeah, thanks, John. So we've predominantly focused there, I suppose, on, on the campaigns of the two largest parties, right? But Paula, you mentioned a bit earlier that for the Lib Dems in particular, they might have almost seen this election as, as a kind of a last roll of the dice, really, in terms of being able to, to stop Brexit. And, you know, their campaign essentially involved a policy of ending Brexit without another referendum. But I wondered, you know, given what we know now about the eventual result of all of this for the Lib Dems, does the pursuance of that policy actually account in any way for their sort of failure to break through at this election? Or, you know, were there other things at play here? Possibly to a small extent, but the much bigger problem for the Lib Dems was that the voters that they might have been able to win over were really concerned about a Corbyn-led government. And so if we look at the, the votes of the, of the Remain side, actually a slightly higher proportion of them voted Conservative than Liberal Democrat, and those Conservative Remainers were really key to the Liberal Democrat campaign. They needed to convince them to move away from the Conservatives. And the thing that held them in place and, and stopped the Lib Dems being able to do that was that those voters were more concerned about a Corbyn-led government than they were about Brexit. So although they didn't particularly want to see Brexit, they were much, much more concerned um, about the kind of more traditional left-right uh, dimension of British politics and didn't want to see a Corbyn government. The, the thing I would also add to Paula's point on that is that the Liberal Democrats were really hurt by Nigel Farage's decision to stand down Brexit party candidates. So on the one hand, they weren't able to win over the kind of Remain supporters uh, from the Conservatives because of concerns about Corbyn. But on the other hand, um, a chunk of the Leave vote that might otherwise have gone Brexit party and thus lowered the bar for them in the seats where they were competing against the Conservatives didn't go to the Brexit party because the Brexit party didn't stand candidates in those seats. Okay, that, that, that leads me to kind of pick up a question I was thinking of asking you later on anyway. Could the Conservatives have won this election if Nigel Farage had not stood down? I, I think, I mean, the hypotheticals like that, John, as you'll know, are always very difficult to answer. And, and you've, That's you've, why they're fun to ask. <laughs> well, that's why they're fun to ask too. And of course, you've, you've done more systematic work than, than I have uh, looking to, to answer this uh, Brexit party impact question with respect to, to Labour seats. I think what's important to remember with this is that there's the direct electoral effect of Brexit party candidates standing in particular seats in terms of, you know, X percent of voters would have been Brexit party, but they're, but they're not. But there's also a harder to specify indirect effect that comes from the fact that Farage's standing candidates down in Conservative seats sends a very strong signal to a lot of otherwise Tory sceptical uh, leave voters that Farage regards Johnson's approach to Brexit as sufficiently good. Um, so it's a kind of tacit endorsement of the conservative Brexit approach. And I suspect given 
the very low levels of trust that many Leave voters have, given that they, they often aren't people with any kind of inherent conservative partisanship at all, that may well have been pretty significant in terms of uh, votes basically across the board in all kinds of constituency contexts. So I think it is easy to imagine a world where if Farage had continued to compete, the Conservatives would have struggled much more to consolidate the Leave vote to the level that they managed to achieve of uh, 70, 75% plus. Uh, and in that situation, you might have ended up with a much smaller Conservative majority or maybe even no majority at all. I'm, I'm not certain that that's the likeliest outcome, but I think it would have been a much more unpredictable campaign at the very least. Okay, one of the things that's often said about winning elections is that they are won by occupying the centre ground. But didn't Boris Johnson's campaign rather cut across that uh, common wisdom? Here was somebody who chose his side on the Brexit debate and pursued it relentlessly, along the way squashing a party that tried to find compromise and you've, you've argued that, you know, Labour had to try to hang on to its Leave vote. But why what might not have uh, an alternative strategy of going for the Remain vote as hard as Boris Johnson went for the Leave vote, perhaps been an alternative way for Labour to have uh, uh, done better in this election? Well, I think the, the problem with that as a strategy is that there's simply not enough Remain seats so that the... The geography well, of the majority the, of the vote, majority of the vote was cast for parties in favour of, of, of a, a second referendum. So that might strike people as well or odd. Yes, but the, the problem is that the distribution of that vote isn't even across all the seats. And so the even if you kind of were able to unite the remain vote fully, there would be far more seats where Leave had won the election. So it wasn't a winning strategy on its own. And of course, a large number of those remain leaning seats are themselves in Scotland where, where the calculation is completely different. Um, so I don't think it was ever going to be a winning strategy for Labour to just unite the remain vote. And as we've seen, actually, that remain vote didn't just splinter across remain parties, as it were, a, a significant chunk of it stayed with the Conservatives anyway. So are you saying there was no way out for Labour? This was an election that uh, once it was about Brexit, there was no chance of it uh, ever doing well in. I think I think to some extent that that is true. And, and actually one one point where interestingly, some of the most Corbyn sceptical Labour sources that we talk to express quite a lot of sympathy for Corbyn and his leader's office's position. And, you know, this this highly criticised kind of, you know, compromise stances on Brexit is that they could see the problem that electoral geography was posing for Corbyn. And, and a number of them said it would have been a problem that would have taxed essentially any Labour leader. Um, but I think that there's two points I would add to what Paul has said as well. The first is to reiterate the, the point she made before about this, the significant chunk of the Remain vote for whom stop Corbyn was a much more powerful motivation than stop Brexit. If you were Labour and you wanted to go full fat remain, and even some of Corbyn's advisers more or less said this, 
you could only do that strategy credibly in terms of vote maximization with a different Labour leader because you would have to win Conservative Remainers and for Conservative Remainers, Corbyn was unacceptable. Um, the second thing I would say, John, on the point of centrism is that the Conservatives were evidently not centrist on Brexit but they were centrist on economic policy. They offered the biggest uh, expansion in public spending by a conservative prime minister since Macmillan. They explicitly trashed um, their predecessor's um, austerity legacy and sought to campaign against it. And Labour aides regarded that as very consequential for the 2019 campaign because they said in 2017, they could run on big spending pledges. In 2019, they would run on 30 billion for health versus 10 billion for health. And as one of them told us, that's just two big numbers next to each other. It neutralizes our ability to, to uh, win the argument on public services. So yes, they were uncompromising on Brexit, but they combined it with what might be considered traditional medium voter centrism on the economy. Okay, Ian. Yeah, thanks, John. So obviously the, the, the spectre of Brexit, I suppose, has shaped a, a lot of what we've been discussing so far, right? But Rob, you've just touched there on, on issues like public spending, public services, these traditional battleground issues. So I wanted to ask, you know, was this largely a Brexit election or did attitudes towards anything else matter as well? So, yes, Ian, I mean, the, when you look at the polling uh, on uh, which attitudes matter to people, um, two things are both true. Firstly, Brexit is dominant uh, from the start of the campaign to the finish as uh, a, an, an important issue. But secondly, there's clearly a, a, a suite of other issues that are being named by very substantial chunks of uh, the electorate, in particular health, but also uh, the environment, crime, housing, the economy. So it is simultaneously a Brexit foremost election and a Brexit plus other things. Uh, election. I mean, probably one of Labour's main campaign successes uh, actually was in, in raising the salience of health through the campaign. And it was something the Conservatives were anxious about uh, all the way through. So the issue agenda was not just Brexit, it was Brexit plus uh, domestic policy, definitely. And that's why it was really important, I think, that the Conservatives' approach to domestic policy in this campaign was quite different to in the previous uh, 2017 campaign, and indeed uh, for the several to the several campaigns before that as well. Yes, yeah, so sorry, I was just going to add to that, picking up the previous point about, about centrism, there were uh, the, the voters that the Labour Party lost, and they lost votes in, in kind of all directions, but the voters that they were losing to the other Remain parties were also more centrist in their outlook on, on economic issues. So that that I think that did play into it as well. It was about Brexit, but there was also a certain element of distance on other issues that made moving to other parties that little bit easier. Okay, right, well, coming towards the end. So of course we've left all the difficult questions to the end. <laughs> um, so let's start with this one. Um, what would have happened if Jeremy Hunt had won the Conservative leadership contest rather than Boris Johnson? Could anyone other than Boris Johnson have ever delivered Brexit? So I've been asked a similar question to that already today. And I think the, the, the difficult thing to answer it is that Boris Johnson, as, as we've, we've said elsewhere and other things we've written, wasn't a uniquely popular figure. 
but he was popular in the places that mattered and he was popular with the voters that mattered. And I don't think Jeremy Hunt would have been able to do that. So had Jeremy Hunt been the leader, the Conservatives may still have won the election, although we probably would never have got to an election. Um, but we would not afterwards have been talking about the Red Wall in the way that we do now. And would we, would we have ever got to Brexit if Jeremy Hunt had become leader? <laughs> well, it would have been harder if, if you had... Uh a prime minister who uh, secured a, a weaker mandate um, in terms of uh, seats won for a weaker policy in terms of um, what exactly he would be uh, proposing to do. I mean, the other thing in the Hunt scenario is it brings us back to the Nigel Farage scenario as well. If Jeremy Hunt had been uh, prime minister going into that December 2019 campaign, I think it's highly unlikely that Farage would have stood his troops down um, in conservative seats uh, and highly likely that he would have spent the whole campaign barraging uh, the airwaves with claims that you couldn't trust Jeremy Hunt's conservatives to deliver the kind of Brexit that people had voted for. And that argument would have been a lot more resonant aimed at a conservative leader like Hunt than a conservative leader like Johnson, who was the most prominent figure on the conservative side associated with the Leave campaign back in 2016. So even if Farage had pursued that argument against Johnson, it wouldn't have been as effective because of his identification with the Leave campaign. Uh, a, a more kind of a central casting Tory would have been more vulnerable to that. OK, moving on, but in the similar vein, can the conservative coalition that impelled Johnson to victory in 2019 for the reasons you've just explained. Can that coalition hold in 2023 or 2024? I think it's potentially very difficult for it to hold for two main factors. The first is that a lot of those voters that moved from Labour to the Conservatives in 2019, they didn't do so with any kind of attachment to the Conservative Party and very few of them express any kind of attachment to the Conservative Party now. So they're, they're more movable, they can be won back again. And we're beginning to see that um, in the polling. I mean, my answer to this, to this question, John, has always been another question, which is, will Brexit partisanship endure and will it transfer to other kinds of issues and conflicts because exactly. Brexit partisanship has been an extraordinary phenomenon in the past five years of, of politics. And it's about the only thing that really holds this very uh, heterogeneous coalition together. Um, but there was an evidence point published um, just I think this morning or possibly yesterday that was Paula's analysis looking at which kinds of political divide voters see as most salient. And yeah. it appears that they are once again, or perhaps they never stopped, uh, seeing politics more in terms of class and left-right divisions than in terms of Brexit, though Brexit partisanship itself remains an enduring phenomenon. If that is the kind of context we go to the next election in, one in which politics is once again about class and once again about economics, it will be very hard for the Conservatives to hold the current coalition together, I think, because they are poles apart on those kinds of questions, the new and old Conservative electorates. OK, um, next one for starter for 10. Who is the more culpable for Labour's loss of the Red Wall? Jeremy Corbyn or Tony Blair? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I, think it's, I think it's a false um, binary, John. I, I think both it's both and, not either or. 
Um, I, I don't think the conditions under which the Red Wall uh, was vulnerable uh, could have happened without um, some of the decisions made um, by Blair and his advisors in terms of how they focused uh, their election campaigning uh, and their, the appeal of their party in the 90s and 2000s. Those had long-term effects. But I also don't think we could have seen quite the level of dramatic collapse that we saw in 2019, if not also for the added impact um, of, of Jeremy um, Corbyn as well. So I, I don't think it's fair to sort of pick a winner there. In a sense, they should both get first prize. <laughs> yeah, but the implication of your answer is that the argument of some people inside the Labour Party now is that what the party needs to do is to return to the ground occupied by Tony Blair is perhaps not necessarily a strategy that's going to be effective at re reacquiring those Labour leave voters. It's, it's not at all obvious that reheated Blairism is what is wanted in the Red Wall. Absolutely not. I mean, it's a very strange argument in a sense, because that is when Labour lost the most ground in partisan terms and sheer weight of votes terms. And neither, you know, the, the kind of economically centrist, socially liberal stances associated with New Labour are just not at all resonant with the voters in those kinds of places. So it, it's not at all clear to me why Blairism would be seen as a solution to the problem that Blairism helped to create. I mean, the answer isn't to look backwards, it's to look forwards, to look to some sort of new solution. And one thing that perhaps Labour could learn from the Corbyn experience is that actually some forms of economic radicalism, which were kind of heavily, uh, as it were, toxified by the experiences of the late 70s and the early 80s, voters today have no memory of that. And that kind of argument, the system is broken, radical change is needed to fix it, actually is popular uh, with a lot of voters. Okay, Ian. Thanks, John. So we've talked today about... I suppose a few of the more widely discussed potential legacies of this election, but actually a really interesting point that you make in the book is that despite the Lib Dems showing in, in 2019, one possible fallout from all of this is that they might actually be in a slightly stronger position now, particularly than they were after 2017. So bearing that in mind, are we likely to see a bit of a Lib Dem resurgence now, or is this proverbial blue wall actually short of a few bricks for them to be able to knock down? I think it's beyond doubt that the Lib Dems are in a better position now than they were going into 2017. It's much clearer in a whole swathe of seats that they are the second place party and that if people wish to vote tactically to remove a Conservative MP, then the Lib Dems are the party that they should choose. So I do think they're in a, in a stronger place, but at the same time, I think claims about a blue wall that can be knocked down as rapidly as the red wall was are, are somewhat overblown. So I think uh, I, I'm being kind of horribly centrist in saying that I think there's an element of, of truth to it, but I think you can also take it a little bit too far. Yeah, isn't it true that a lot of these seats where the Democrats are second, they're still an enormously long way behind? Yeah, absolutely. But I think it does help them to make the case in, in, a, in a handful of seats where it was much harder looking at the 2017 data to do so, even where it was obvious that they should be the second place party based on the, the kind of pockets of strength in, in 2005 and 2010, their, their weakness in 15 and 17 meant it was really hard for them to make that argument. OK, well, I guess if you've only got 12 MPs, the possibility of getting another 12 looks quite looks quite alluring. But anyway, OK, <laughs> well, we've we, we introduced this uh, podcast by reminding folk that this is the latest 
book in a series um, published by uh, uh, Palgrave Macmillan. Um, so we thought that perhaps um, this was the last question to ask you. So which of the following has been the most important post-war British election? 1945, 1979, or 2019? I mean, I, I am tempted to um, uh, paraphrase the, the, the famous Chinese politician who said it's, it's too soon to tell with regards to the, the, the French Revolution. Um, I would say of the three, I would still be inclined towards one of the first two um, because at present, we have not seen evidence that aside from Britain's relationship to Europe, that this has been an election that will fundamentally reset uh, the institutions and terms of conduct of domestic British politics. But, but you've already yourself point, pointed out in the, the Conservative manifesto was an extraordinarily Conservative manifesto. And now the circumstances of COVID is indeed going to push this Conservative administration to making the British state uh, larger uh, than it has been for most of the post-war period. I mean, isn't this the election perhaps that as well as ending Britain's membership of the European Union has also resulted in the end of Thatcherism? It could be, um, but I think it's it's still a bit too early to, to say. And uh, while there may be a legacy in terms of particular trajectories of spending, the institutional legacy aside from Brexit is not so clear. I mean, the institutional legacy from the 1945 election was extraordinarily broad and indeed roughly half of public spending today goes on the institution particularly associated with that government the NHS um, the institutional legacy of Thatcherism pretty much defined the terms of political debate for 40 years up until 2019 it could be that 2019 proves to be the bookend on that um, but I don't think we can say that with any certainty now because although there's been a lot of emergency spending what are the lasting institutions and policies that this government has produced uh, aside from Brexit related ones? I'm not sure I would have a long list to give to you at the moment. Paula? I think of the three listed, I would probably choose 1945 because of the, the breadth of the institutions that, that Rob's just mentioned. Um, but there's, there's an element of also thinking, what, what would the last 18 months, two years have looked like with any kind of different outcome for the for the 2019 election and I think we're I say this a lot but we're so mired in the middle of the pandemic in the middle of a crisis it's really hard to see where we end up with this and whether or not actually that election and the fact it gave us the government it did to get us through this particular phase of, of history um, might prove to be more consequential in the long run. Could I, could I add one coda to that actually John? I'd just like to recall something that, that Phil Cowley reminded me David Butler once wrote, which is that all of the most significant and lasting choices and events in British politics have happened between elections. And in most cases, when you look at those choices and the events that drove them, it's hard to say that the other party would have done much very differently. Uh, I, I think Thatcherism can be thought of as a definite exception to that rule. But if we take the current parliament, how different would the response to COVID have been? with a different government. The responses we've seen all over the world have been broadly similar in terms of big government uh, interventions to cushion the economic pain of big social restrictions. So in that sense, did it actually make a big difference on the domestic front at all so far? 
Robert Ford, Paula Surridge, you've produced a book that does give us a very substantial analysis and understanding of what happened in the 2019 election. But of course, as you, as you yourselves have now implicitly acknowledged, writing instant history of that kind is indeed very difficult. Uh, but I suspect that uh, when we come to the next general election, we will be going back and thumbing what you wrote about 2019 as being, and indeed as being indispensable uh, for anybody who wishes to understand uh, where we will have got to by the end of this parliament. So thank you very much for participating in this podcast. Uh, the British General Election of uh, 2019 uh, by Robert Ford, Tim Bale, Will Jennings and Paula Surridge is available from all good bookshops and is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you very much for listening. Before we go, as ever, we'd like to say thank you to the ESRC and especially their UK in a Changing Europe programme who promote high quality independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU and who fund the work that we do here at What UK Thinks and also over at What Scotland Thinks too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes towards Brexit. So please do head to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatukthinks.org forward slash EU and explore the comprehensive collection of publicly available polling data that we have on there. You can see how public attitudes to all sorts of aspects of the Brexit process have changed over time and you can view our in-depth analysis of how people think the UK's relationship with the EU should look post-Brexit. And if you're interested in public attitudes towards the UK's constitutional arrangements, have a listen to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at what people think about how Scotland, England and Wales should be governed, again with the help of the expert eye of Sir John Curtis.